Well, good afternoon. Welcome again to our afternoon uh, church history study. As we begin, we always start off with a reading from Scripture. So if you have your copy of God's Word, please turn with me to the book of Hebrews. We will be reading the 11th chapter in its entirety. So Hebrews chapter 11. Beginning in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered, a, offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks by, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as innumerable grains of the sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a home, a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has, prepared them for, he, had, he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the, promise, the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. 
By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the, of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell, af- fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through fair who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering around, about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That is the inspired and inerrant word of God for God's people. As we are continuing in our study of Augustine, this is our third session, session 14. We have... um, in the last two sessions, been following along in Augustine's confession, finding there a prayer from Augustine, and so it is no different today that I, I offer up a prayer from Augustine. So if you will bow your heads with me, we will look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I am your servant, born of your own handmaid. You have broken the chains that bound me. I will sacrifice in your honor. Let me praise you in my heart. Let me praise you with my tongue. Let this be the cry of my whole being. Lord, there is none like you. Let them say this and in answer, I beg you, whisper in my heart, I am here to save you. Who am I? What kind of man am I? What evil have I not done? Or if there is evil that I have not done, what evil is there that I have not spoken If there is any that I have not spoken, what evil is there that I have not willed to do? 
But you, O Lord, are good. You are merciful. You saw how deep I was sunk in death, and it was your power that drained drained dry the well of corruption in the depths of my heart. And all that you asked from me was to deny my own will and accept yours. But during all those years, where was my free will? What was the hidden secret place from which it was summoned in a moment so that I might bend my neck to your easy yoke and take your light burden on my shoulders? Christ Jesus, my helper and my redeemer. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose and was now glad to reject. You drove them from me, you who are true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood. You who outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. At last, my mind was free from the gnawing anxieties of ambition and gain, from wallowing in faith, scratching the itches of sore lusts. I began to talk to you freely, O Lord my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. Amen. Well, as we approach the study of Augustine today, we find ourselves looking at what is probably considered his greatest work, Um, certainly one of many words and pages. Um, It is called The City of God. And as we begin to look at this this writing of Augustine, we want to consider a little bit about the author, which I would uh, commend to you to review Uh, The last two sessions, uh, sessions 12 and 13, where Brother Thaddeus covered much of Augustine as as his life, and so I I would ask that you go back and review that. Um, And if if you haven't heard of Augustine, you'll probably still get a little bit to tuck in your hat here as you you walk away. So um, Augustine was born uh, in 354. Uh, He died in 430. He was a giant among the Latin fathers of the church. Uh, a man who, uh, born of a pagan father and a Christian mother, uh, worked his way through um, understanding faith and philosophy, wrote on history, um, becoming the Bishop of Hippo, and ultimately, if any one man could be attributed to this, had a great effect upon Western civilization and certainly upon the church. Um, Michael Haken, in his Defense of the Truth, Uh, said of Augustine, aside from the writers of Scripture, there has been uh, very few that have influenced uh, Western thought and the church uh, as Augustine. B.B. Warfield, in describing Augustine, said that of the Reformation, it was an Augustinian Reformation, for Luther was an Augustinian monk, and Calvin referred to no other writer more than that of Augustine. And so Augustine has a very significant place in church history, uh, in Western culture, in in Western ideologies and and history. And so we're going to take a look at at his his book called The City of God. And if you look at the heading of your your handout, and I assume everybody got one, there was 30 and they're all gone, and I don't see anybody looking at me like they need anything, so 
Uh, it, at the top of your heading, it says, uh, we called this one Augustine's Cities. And though the book is called The City of God, there are two cities that are illustrated in this work. One is the city of God, the other is the city of man. Now, if I could just give you, by way of imagination, a little bit of a backdrop. So, imagine that you are the citizen of a city, a great city, that was, for much of the empire in which that city exists, it was the capital of that empire. Uh, It was a glorious, or is a glorious city that is the center of government, democracy, representative government, statesmen, um, laws that keep everything going and in order. And actually, the city is, is known as kind of a shining beacon on the hill, as it were, in, in the world. And no, I'm not talking about America. But I am talking about Rome. And Rome, as it were, in the years leading up to 410 Rome was the, the bastion of, of the Roman Empire. It was considered impenetrable. It was considered eternal. And so you're a citizen living in this, in this city. And over the last 100, 150 years, there's been talk and some, even some evidences of some decay within the morality of this city. There has become some weakness within Rome, but still you go on about your day with commerce on the day-to-day activities, and, and you do notice there's some morality that has changed, and even uh, some of the structure of the city itself seems to be different, but, but don't worry, it's, it's Rome, and it will last forever. Well, in the year 408, if you were a citizen of Rome, that would have been the everyday thought on the streets. The common man on the streets of Rome would have had no worry as to what might happen in the next couple of years. But the morality that was in decay was not the morality that you and I think of. The the cautionary notes of the day in 408 or 409 to the common man were not the same things that you and I think about. In fact, the morality of the day was the worship of the pantheon of the false gods. But yet, there has come some crazy sect those that follow in the way, those that follow after a man who was crucified on a cross and told to have risen again the third day in Jerusalem, that call themselves Christians. And they have found their seats within the government of the Roman Empire. In fact, there's an influence, it's highly, highly irregular with Rome, that seems to be troublesome. Well, fast forward to 410, and you have the Visigoths, or King Aluric and his Goths, that come against Rome. The Visigoths were a mercenary group that were hired by Rome, and wouldn't you know it, Rome didn't pay her debts. And so the Goths came to collect, and in a very brief and succinct but effective military maneuver, they brought an attack against Rome that was considered by many to be apocalyptic. Rome was untouchable. It was impenetrable. But Rome had fallen, and it would not be the last time she would suffer at the hands of her enemies. If you're paying attention to your outline there, the very first paragraph, we have somewhat of a backstory to the writing and the history of 
Augustine's City of God. Uh, on August 24th, in the year 410, Rome fell to the hands of the Goths, the city which had been thought eternal and impenetrable in a quick but calculated attack was laid waste by the Visigoth king, Aluric. This was viewed, as we said, as an apocalyptic event. The very head of the Roman Empire was severed, and, and that event would have rippling effects throughout the known world. The city had in many ways been led by Christians. You think of Constantine or uh, Theodosius. Some Christians held hope for a Christian era that would uh, rise from the ashes, if you would, from the Roman Empire. However, that all changed as this trouble had emerged and some Romans laid the blame of the fall of Rome squarely at the feet of the Christians. How many of you have ever heard of Augustine's work, The City of God? Raise your hands. How many of you have ever read or listened to all of it? Thaddeus, of course. How many of you have read or listened to part of it? All right. Everybody on this side <laughs> starting to see a pattern. Well, I would commend to everybody the reading of the, of the work. I, I, I wouldn't commend the entirety of the book as it is. It's, it's comprised of 22 books. Um, which are really very long, some short chapters, 858 pages. Um, I would, however, recommend to you to read the... There's an abridged version. Uh, in your handout on the very back, there is a, a list of books. Uh, F.R. Montgomery Hitchcock has a version in paperback. Uh, I, I would recommend that one. Um, it's $7 on Amazon. Again, it's a paperback, and it's 118 pages. Very... Very friendly, highlighting all the good points uh, that are important throughout the writing. But the question comes to us, why did Augustine write the city of God? What was the purpose? Well, uh, Augustine wrote this work as an apologetic, prompted by letters written from and to his friend Marcellinus, uh, Marcellinus, just a, a little bit of backstory here. Marcellinus was the Secretary of State for the Western Roman Empire, and he was a very close friend of Augustine. And he was also a correspondent of Jerome. Now, M Marcellinus had been sent to Africa by the Emperor uh, Honorius. I don't know if we've talked about him at all in the church history up to this point, but um, Honorius uh, arranged a settlement between. Uh, the Roman Empire, and the Donatists, and so he sent Marcellinus as an envoy um, to, to negotiate between Don, the Donatists and the worldwide or Catholic Church, um, using the word Catholic there as we would find in our last handout as universal or worldwide church, not Roman Catholic. So this brought Marcellinus into contact with uh, Augustine and also with a man by the name of Volusian. Now, Volusian was the proconsul of Africa, and a man, of, a man of rare intelligence and candor. Finding that Volusian, though yet as a pagan, took a very keen interest in the Christian religion. Marcellinus set his heart on converting him to the true faith. And details of Volusian's actual conversion escape us uh, in the historic record. But we do find that Marcellinus had connected Augustine to 
uh, to Volusian for the purpose of helping Volusian work through some of the hiccups he had with the Christian faith. Uh, I, would, I would say that in the event of Marcellinus's um, uh, work in Africa and the conversation between the three of them, what we have prior to the fall of Rome is something of uh, providential landings or happenings that occur over the next couple of years. Well, fast-forwarding, you have the fall of Rome in 410, and then shortly after that, Marcellinus is uh, charged by the Donatists. Uh, He is charged for uh, involving a rebellion, and a very active uh, and friendly general who was uh, friendly to the Donatists seizes Marcellinus and his brother and puts them before a judge who in 413... Uh, finds them both guilty and executes them. So three years after the fall of Rome, Augustine and Marcellinus uh, corresponding via letter about the fall of Rome, Marcellinus tells Augustine, you need to write something a little more than these few letters that gives a defense from a Christian worldview against the charges of those who say that the fall of Rome is the Christian's fault. Augustine, very, being very busy with writing, responded back, I, I'm too busy, I've got many other works I'm working on. Um, but after the death of Marcellinus in 413, this sparks a fire within Augustine. And Augustine begins writing his work on the two cities. Now, true to government fashion, Emperor Aronius one year later, exonerates Marcellinus after his death. So, finds him guiltless with the rebellion. And this, again, fuels Augustine in his consideration for what it looks like for Christians to live in a world that is not only fallen, but decidedly hostile toward God and toward God's people. And how do we work this out? I find it very interesting from the sermon this morning, the, the very content of what we heard there being that of the reality of hell and the torments thereof, uh, the call to all to believe in Christ. These were the things that fueled Augustine in his writing. For both cities, the city of God, which in one way represents the church on earth, but also the saints in heaven, and the city of man, both of those cities have an end. They're very different, but they have an end. And, of course, the end for the city of man is destruction and hell. And the end for the city of God and its, its members is the very presence of God in heaven. And so this fueled Augustine to write um, his books, and so he did. Uh, in that 858 pages, 22 books written over 13 years. So the completion of... The city of God ended uh, in 426, just four years shy of Augustine's death. Uh, The work, as I said, is basically an apology against those who blamed Christianity as well as an instructive sort of catechism for Christians regarding their citizenship in God's city rather than man's city. Augustine's intention was to help... form Christians' engagement in the world, 
while understanding the history that unfolds around them. From Augustine's revisions, he writes this. He says, Rome was devastated by an assault on the part of the Goths. Pagans attempted to impute the devastation to the Christian religion and began to blaspheme against the true God with more harshness and bitterness than usual. So burning with zeal for the house of God, I started to write books on the city of God in answer to their blasphemes, their blasphemies and errors. So the purpose of the writing was an apologetic. It was a defense of the Christian religion. And in book one, Augustine takes um, a very detailed approach to explaining that Rome's fall started way before 410. Uh, it started because those who had tested God's patience in continuing to worship pagan idols and to give alms and, and constantly worship false gods, well, they had run the course of God's patience. And it is God who raises up cities, it is God who sustains cities, and it is God who brings down cities. And so from Augustine's perspective, Rome's fall was just the end of a course that had already begun running. If we could pause there for a moment, and, and I would say Augustine is also known for being the first of his kind, sort of a groundbreaking philosopher of history in stating that history is linear. And, and from the look of Scripture, we see that there is a beginning and there is an end, and God is providentially and sovereignly working out history as it unfolds, whereas his contemporaries saw history as something circular. These things happen, they'll happen again. So that was kind of the, the, the mainstay of the Stoics of, of, of Augustine's time. But Augustine himself painted out a linear projection of history. And, and I, I would say, as we look not only to a very, very familiar place in the city in which we dwell, the state, the country in which we dwell, we see some of the repeating patterns. And Augustine wouldn't say these things don't happen again and again because man, after all, in his nature is fallen. And we would know from the preacher that there's nothing new under the sun. Man's folly and his attempts and his, his bathing in sin is not new. Man may not be as, as depraved as he could be, but there are times in human history where that depravity catches up with mankind in history. So just something to think about as we go through the study and see that Augustine's writings are not just encapsulated in a time far away, but they're very informative um, as we move forward through our own history. All right, so the purpose as an apology and something of an instructive book for Christians in how to engage in this world, what about the theme of the work? In the preface of The City of God, Augustine writes, The glorious city of God is my theme in this work, which you, my dearest son, Marcellinus, suggested and which is due to you by my promise. As the plan of this work we have undertaken requires and as an occasion offers, we must speak also of the earthly city, which, though it be mistress of the nations, is itself ruled by its lust of rule." So the theme, and by the end of book one, uh, Augustine summarizes again the scope uh, of 
and sequence of his work. <clears throat> he says, in truth, these two cities are entangled together in this world and intermixed until the, very la- until the last judgment affect their separation. I now proceed to speak as God shall help me of the rise, progress, and the end of these two cities. And what I write, I write for the glory of the city of God, that being placed in comparison with the other. It may shine with a brighter luster, but I have still some things to say in confutation of those who refer the disaster of the Roman Republic to our religion, because it prohibits the offering of sacrifices to the gods. And lastly, I must meet those who, when on this point convinced and confuted by irrefragable, irrefragable proofs, endeavor to maintain that they worship the gods, not hoping for present advantages of this life, but for those which are to be enjoyed after death. In his first book, Augustine paints out the fact that, look, Rome fell not because Christians lured pagans away from worshiping pagan idols. The pagan gods that don't exist didn't get angry, didn't withdraw their favor from Rome, and so that's, that's just ridiculous. And, and, and it goes on to say that even in the lives of Pagans, pagans, uh, they persecuted pagans. There were uh, Mars, uh, uh, General uh, Regulus who was captured and tortured. He was a pagan worshiper, but he was captured and, and tortured by pagans. So Augustine paints out the picture from the very beginning in book one that the calamity of Rome isn't at the feet of Christians. And he makes that defense uh, very actively. Uh, In addition to the theme as that which Augustine would say is to glorify the city of God over and opposed to the contrast of the city of man, he says that these two cities are also governed by two different loves. In your insert there, uh, in the next paragraph on the left side, we have this. And I'm going to read a longer section of Augustine's explanation, uh, but you get the gist of it in your handout as well. Accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly one by love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly one by love of God, even to the contempt of self, the former in a word, in a world, in a word, glorifies itself, the latter in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greatest glory of the other is God, the witness of conscience. The one lifts up the head in its own glory, and the other says to God, Thou art my glory and the lifter of my head. So the two cities, as Augustine sees them, they have very vast and different ambitions. They have very different citizens. They have very different uh, goals and outcomes. And all of this is fueled by two very different loves. A love for God and the city of God by its citizens who seek to glorify God and a love for self in the city of man that knows no end in the indulgences of flesh and idolatry. So what of the history and the two cities? Uh, Augustine separates the earthly eschatological cities into two, um, the city of God and the city of man. 
The city of God would represent an eschatological city made up of all true worshipers throughout history, and that would even include angels, the uh, good angels, that is. But the city of God on earth are those Christians who are pilgriming, sojourning in this world as foreigners on their way to their eternal home. Now, contrast that to the city of man. The city of man is made up of all evildoers that reject the one true God. The city is also described as ultimately eschatological in nature, which means it has, it has an end, and that end is doomed to everlasting punishment in hell. The city is also present on earth uh, in the society of the wicked. Each individual is a member of one city and one city only. Christians belong to the city of God and unbelievers to the city of man. These two cities are set against one another here on earth, And as I said before, Augustine loosely identifies the church as that city of God on earth and the civil government as the uh, earthly manifestation of the city of man. Now, that being said, their identities are not set in stone. That means you could be a member of the city of man or the city of earth, and then God move you to the city of God. How might that happen? Anybody have an idea? How might you become a member of the city of God by conversion. Is that what you said? Yeah, by conversion. God changing your heart, and, and, and also when he changes the heart of the man, remember those two loves? God changes the love of the man for himself, and the, thereby you become a citizen of the city of God by new birth, conversion. But you cannot be a member of both cities at the same time in Augustine's view. In fact, the two cities are intermingled in this present age. Unbelievers often found participating in the life of the church. We would identify those as hypocrites that are in the church even today. Um, And believers having a role in the greater society, believers fulfilling roles within the civil government. Um, And so that's, that's something of a description of the two cities. There is an antithesis that exists between the two, and this did not originate with Augustine. Um, How many of you have ever heard of the Didache? Again with this side. You need to go sit over there. You're now in the city of God. (laughs) So before Augustine wrote his entire work where he really wrestles with this idea of the two cities, the, the Didache, a century before or in the first century, um, had what was known as the two ways. We'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. And then there was another more nuanced writing in the second century called the Epistle to Diognetus. Has anybody heard of the Epistle to Diognetus? All right, we've got a couple again on this side. It's amazing. So this idea of two cities, two ways, two lives, this is very familiar language to us. This this. If we could uh, maybe think of Matthew chapter 7. Anybody here knows what happens in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus gives an, uh, an expounding of what it means to have two ways, right? He says, what? Enter in at the narrow gate, for broad is the way and wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And there are many who will go in that way. 
But straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads to life, and few there are that find it. And so you have this immediate understanding that there is, there's two ways. Uh, the Didache talks about these two ways or two roads of life and death between, which is an, between them there is an impassable divide. These two ways are identified by lifestyles and conduct that contrast one another. The way of life is summarized by love of God and neighbor. The way of death is known by its blasphemies, murders, adultery, lust, fornications, etc. This sets Christians as radically different from the world in terms of those who reject Christ. And then a century later, you have this epistle to Diognetus. And in, in this epistle, there is uh, not a refutation of the, of the Didache, kind of a, a nuanced accompaniment to it. Um, and it actually says that, while it's not opposed to the Didache and the antithesis theme of the Didache, the theme of this work highlights commonality. So the epistle of Diognetus says that Christians have things in common with the world, and and in that commonality, there is still an antithesis. In fact, there's hostility between the world and, and the Christian. Um, the, the, the writer of the letter is anonymous, and it is an apologetic describing the meaning and result of salvation by faith in Christ. It, like the Didache and the City of God, presumes the stark difference between the life of believers and unbelievers, but it describes the persecution of Christians being condemned, put to death, being poor and destitute, defamed, dishonored, reviled, all while Christians in the world are doing good. So it highlights the commonality in that Christians don't have their own city. They don't have their own clothing. They don't have their own language. They're, they partake of the things in the common realm. And so there is a commonality between the Christians, but that commonality, uh, it, it has a line, and that commonality ends where an antithesis begins, and that is in their faith toward God. Um, this isn't in my notes, but I was thinking about it a moment ago. Have you, anybody ever heard Plenty the Younger? We've, we know Plenty the Younger. Let me guess, only on this side. In his letter uh, uh, to Trajan, he writes, um, claiming the Christians were immoral, Remember why they were immoral? They don't, they don't partake of, of the sexual deviancies. They don't give a pinch to the gods. These guys are immoral. Um, but there was hostility toward those who, who Pliny was interrogating. He was trying to seek out who were those that were following in the way, torturing them until they confessed or refuted Christ. And so I just came to my mind as I was thinking that that would be a great example of what uh, the epistle of Diognetius was, was trying to emphasize. Um, all right, now we come to a point in our handout where I have to do some explaining. There's this chart here uh, using some high-tech anal um, analytic software called MS Paint. I was able to draw this graph and this chart to help us kind of understand uh, maybe a little simplified version of what it means to be uh, kind of looking at the city of God. Now, there are, some, there are some weaknesses in this chart. I just want to point out one. 
Um, on the left, so the circles are earth. That's, that's, I don't know if you can tell that or not, but that's, that's earth. That's the temporal realm. The confines of the square on both sides are the eschatological end, both of heaven and hell. And the two circles, they, they represent the city of God uh, and the city of man. I, I'm not trying to say that believers ought to be outside the church. That's not what I'm trying to say here. Um, so I just want to explain that. Um, but I hope this is helpful as we look at believers being in the church and also partaking of the things in the common realm, the city of man, such as uh, society, civil government, those types of things. There's nothing that bars a Christian from being a, a governor or working for the city council or even being a king. Um, that wasn't, wasn't very common. Uh, even in Scripture, we find more Christian slaves than we find Christian masters. Um, but, but it wasn't forbidden. It wasn't, it wasn't something out of the realm of, of, of God's providential plan. And then on the other side, the unbelievers, which represent the city of man, they, they also participate in civil uh, authorial positions. They, they participate in the church, as we talked about, as being hypocrites. We, we look at the church. We know that uh, and, and every, all of our elders uh, would say it would be an error to think that every single person that comes through the door uh, is a Christian. And so we, we preach the gospel to all people, particularly in our body, because there are those among us who, who may, may be self-deceived, may be purposefully deceptive. Um, we, we recognize that we take by profession of faith those who are in Christ, uh, but we don't have an eye into the soul. We can't see how man stands before God. So we, we know that there are those of the world in, uh, in the church. And then of the two separating points, the line down the middle represents the end of time. When the consummation of the age shall come, God will separate both worlds. He will separate those that are his from those that are not. The wheat and the tares, if you will. And then also over on the right side, you have that eschatological hell, which is the ultimate uh, end for the city of man. There you have not only the, the place of the damned, but you also have demons. Demons make up that realm. Just as on the left side, you have the city of God there, which you have the saints that are dead in Christ and, and angels. So, in my Venn diagram skills, I attempted to make a chart that was helpful, but then realized I probably needed more circles, and then there would be more segments, and it would just be convoluted after that point. So, bear with my simple presentation, if you will, but I find it helpful to try and visualize uh, things this way. All right, now what about the structure of the work itself? The city of God comprises 22 books that are arranged in groups, and we find later Augustine gives us a map on how uh, he grouped those later, which we'll look at in a moment. Uh, but if you flip over to the very last page there, the groups are laid out for us. Uh, books 1 through 10, uh, he considers a defense of Christianity. Books 11 through 14 uh, tell us the origin of the two cities, where they come from. Books 15 through 18 give us the history of the two cities. And then books 19 through 22 
speak to the destinies of the two cities. I know we finished um, the controversies of Augustine last month, and then before that we spoke uh, on, uh, Brother Thaddeus spoke on the confession, the confessions of, of Augustine. Um, in Augustine's work, there's a very familiar pattern, even in his confession, in his confessions. Uh, he begins with his pre-baptismal life, and he moves to his post-baptismal life. In Augustine's own upbringing, he had a pagan father and a Christian mother. And I, I believe this, this directs the way he views the world as he, as he goes through life. And in, in his works, in the city of God, you find Rome, a pagan city, which has moved to become then a, a Christianized sort of city. And, and he makes an apology, then a defense for the Christian faith over and against the charges of, of the pagans. This theme repeats itself much through Augustine's work. I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, but Augustine begins his work in Book One by discussing the fall of Rome and the loss of her earthly glory. Then he properly ends the city of God in Book Twenty Two, discussing the fullness of the glory of Christ. From Augustine's perspective, uh, what happened to Rome in Four Ten was just a shadow of what happens to all of human and societal history at the return of King Jesus. And so we come to near the end of our introduction. I know it was rather short, and I, I wanted to go longer, um, but for those who might chagrin or, or even complain or even be excited about the shortness of this one, the next one will be longer. Um, I guarantee you. We're going to take a look at some of the books themselves, um, some topics I find uh, very helpful for us as we, we look through this work, and I encourage you all, um, don't exhaust yourself with Augustine. Augustine is a, uh, a valuable saint given to the church by God for God's glory and, and our edification, and I would, I would encourage you to, to read what you can of him, spend much time with him. Um, it's not often you find somebody who's, uh, who's a, significant, a significant person in church history, or even our contemporary time, where uh, they write something in their younger ages, and when they get older, they go back and they actually publish revisions to some of the things that they believed, or even some complete retractions. Um, that was Augustine. Augustine did that in, in two works called Revisions and Retractions. Um, and I, I, find that, I find that very very good, as we, we don't start off perfect. Uh, we certainly don't end this life with perfect understanding, but we do develop understanding as we go through by God's grace. Uh, so next, next time we will peek at some of those books more specifically. Um, I will, I don't know which ones. Here's, here's why. Um, some of the topics I think that I want to bring out, they kind of span several books. Um, one of the topics is just war theory. Has anybody ever heard of Christian just war theory? Raise your hand. Only this side again. What is going on? Thaddeus is over there. He's a great influencer. You're the <laughs> Gary goes over there. Anyway, um, the, uh, the topic of just war theory comes from the city of God. And, and just war theory in, in Augustine's mind... Uh, you needed to have just cause. You needed to have uh, you needed to have proper authority, and of course, uh, you needed to have um, 
you need to have an end to a war. That those things develop out of Augustine's city of God. Later, we find tenets added to this just war theory, such as a proportionate response to war and things like that. But uh, the work is immense, and many topics, they span several of the books. Um, often they're repeated, so I'm trying to find a good mix of, of books, maybe four or five, or maybe just one from each part uh, we'll cover next, next time. So that will be um, more on the detail of the books. All right, well, most of you stayed awake. So that's good. Um, before we go to questions, let me, I know Kyle read in the, in the benediction at the end of this morning's message, um, he actually stole my text that I was going to close this from. I, I should have gone and said something to him. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but if you will turn back to the book of Hebrews, let's revisit this text uh, in chapter 13, as we, as we close, before we take questions, we'll read this. Hebrews chapter 13. Beginning in verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. I wonder if you caught the contrast between those who lived by faith in Hebrews chapter 11, the contrast between their hope, which was to gain that which they did not see, but that which was promised, and then to see the treatment of those, those of whom the Scripture says are not worthy of this world. And here, even now, we're reminded that we hold not for a city to be called our own here, but for a city that is an eternal city, a city whose builder is God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you that we thank you that your word, the scriptures, have arrested all things under sin that we might see the glory of your Son and our great need for him. And that we might come to him as those with empty hands in need of forgiveness, in need of a sacrifice that not only satisfies your wrath, but quells your justice. Father, we thank you that you have 
plucked us out of a dead and dying temporal world and you have placed us seated in the heavenly places where we go through this life with the good news of the gospel for those who have yet to be converted. For the sake of your elect, grant, I pray, boldness to speak, advantage in time that we may not waste our days. In Christ's name, amen. All right, any questions? Um, I know it's just an intro, but anybody have any thoughts? I win. Uh oh. Gary. <laughs> Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Uh, question What do you think would be uh, any, making some assumptions here, but what would be dangers or shortfalls of not making distinct, of being a believer and not distinguishing uh, between uh, the two cities? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think one of, uh, one of the things is that we can become, well, our, our attention and our, our motivation can be misplaced. Um, and I think, I think for the Christian who um, seeks to glorify God and, and to make God happy in our obedience uh, to him, um, might find an appeal to see that, well, this would be a much better place here if we could uh, just only want to have Christians within a city, with Christian government. Um, um, I, I think that, that that steals away not only uh, the hope and the glory that is to come from the Christian, uh, but it misplaces our time, our talents, and our treasure eventually wanting to involve the entirety of the church's focus to uh, elect officials and, and to seize a land to uh, reclaim it, uh, as it were, and not see that God has a purpose for this place. God has a, pl- a purpose for the temporal realm, and, uh, and that purpose is for his glory. And, and if we try to establish a heaven here on earth, we're we're saying that what, what Christ has said he has gone to do, I mean, where I am, you will also be with me. He has gone to make a place for us. He hasn't given us a commission to make a place here. And so I, I think that, that, can, that can become consuming and somewhat defeating the Christian and cause us to leave off the fact that, as Luther would say, you know, trying to urge against the monastics that found themselves in enclaves where they withdrew from, from culture and society. He said, God intends to feed people. He intends that by using farmers. Therefore, your vocation, your work in the world, not to reclaim or, or subdue it, um, to call it a Christian nation, but to seek after the hearts of those individuals in the vocation that you have, not to withdraw. Uh, and I think that's one of the dangers is you'll find something of a, a tendency to want to hyper-separational, have a hyper-separational view away from the world. Um, that's one, one thing that I can think of. But good question. Anyone else?
All right. What is our final hymn? Five hundred and forty eight. All right, 548, would you please stand with me, would you? 